welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Brian McLean on April 2nd. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this Lord's Day. We're thankful for all who would show up early to to, uh, learn more about you, to read your word, and to think about it. We ask that you would uh, bless this time. May it be fruitful for all of us, and may it prepare us for uh, your worship later today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the name of this series, which is going to be... It's, it's a week, so it's this week, two weeks, and then two weeks. So we have five Sundays in April with two weeks in the middle that we're not doing Sunday school. So this will be a three-part series. The next one you'll have to remember for two weeks, so you can come in two weeks and, and remember and, and pick up where we left off. But, um, so this is called the liturgical home. And so there's a lot of... That could mean a lot of different things. So I want to begin by, by explaining what exactly I mean. So a liturgy is simply a form according to which public religious worship, especially Christian worship, is conducted. And, and that's important because liturgy refers to religious practices. But in recent years, liturgy has, be, has come to mean you know, you know, people use it as a catchphrase now. It's kind of this cool, hip thing now. Everything's liturgical. And so it, what it does, even if it's not intended, there's a blurring of the line between the sacred and the secular. And so in this sense, like the liturgical home, if you didn't know, if I didn't explain what I was talking about, you may come, someone may come and, and think, okay, um, this could be the liturgy of my quiet time or the liturgy of my morning routine or the liturgy of bath time, you know, and we, there's a liturgy to drawing the bath water and getting candles out and getting the right music. And, and that's what it really has come to mean for a lot of people, which makes sense when you think about how weak our churches are today. There, there's not a lot of depth and people really do crave Meaning, They crave history. They crave a deeper understanding of their life. And they're not getting it in church, but they are latching on to these things like liturgy and um, authenticity or empowerment. You know, whatever it may be. You know, there's a whole list of these catchphrases that are being used today. Liturgy's just found a little place right alongside it. My use of the, of the word liturgy is actually to emphasize the primacy of corporate worship. So when I say the liturgical home, what I'm saying is a home that is shaped by the liturgy of our Lord's Day worship, what we will do today after this class. Ritual is different than liturgy. Ritual or routine can be very helpful in making an orderly home. And we will have discussions about some of the practical ideas for doing this. But ritual is not liturgy. A liturgical home is a home in which the daily rituals and even our family traditions are shaped by the components of worship. So let's talk about what these components are. If you have your Bibles, 
turn to Leviticus 9. We're not going to read all of it. What I want to do is just as a time saver, because I have a lot of scripture here today. I may ask, so in fact, let me go ahead now while I'm thinking about it, while y'all are turning, and ask a couple of y'all to maybe be ready. I think it'll be fine. I was a little concerned about having other people read because they're recording it here, but just be a little loud, I guess. <laughs> uh, if somebody could get number six, 22 through 27. Does anybody want to read that? Okay. Number six. Uh, somebody pull up, somebody have ready Colossians 3, 16. Anybody want to have that? All right. And then James 5, 13 through 16. All right. We'll go with that for now. And then um, we'll see, see how that goes. All right. So Leviticus 9 is essentially a day in the life of Israel's covenant worship, the sacrificial system. Now, what we do here at um, Trinity is called covenant renewal worship. And the, the thing with what we do here is not so much that we worship this way because we feel like this is the only way to do worship. The whole point of why we do worship the way we do is because worship was meant to shape. God created worship to shape us, to form us. He's creating us in a particular image, and he instituted particular practices, not because, you know, killing the animal, there was something inherent, inherent about it. In fact, he even talks about that, right? It wasn't the blood of bulls and goats. It was what was in the heart. It was their obedience. But the point was that these things were teaching them about God. They were teaching them about worship and how to respond to God. That's what we do here. There's nothing inherent in the bread or the wine in, in the sense there's magic abilities there that the wine actually, you know, does. So, you know, sort of like Catholics where it's literally the body and blood of Christ. So when we take it, like something has changed in it. And there's nothing inherent and, you know, the particular hymns that we sing. We choose the hymns that we sing because of their richness and fullness and, and the fact that they are teaching something about God and it's not just repeating choruses over and over about how, you know, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. You know, that's, so there's intention behind what we do. Leviticus 9 gives us a pattern for this. So the first, so the covenant renewal worship, and again, you're probably, you're probably familiar with this. I'm preaching to the choir here, but number one is a call to worship. There's five steps. The first one is a call to worship. We see that in verse five of Leviticus nine. Wow, I'm getting old. Okay. Um, and they brought what Moses mandated in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. They were called to come and draw near to the Lord. That's the call to worship. The next one is confession and absolution. This is related to the purification offering. There were bulls for priests, and you see this in Leviticus 9. Aaron and his sons have to bring a bull to be sacrificed for their sins. There's actually, if you want to, if we can scoot, if there's any empty seats in the middle, maybe kind of, there's, we've got a number of people out there. Um, thank you. But in, in Old Covenant worship, 
God required that the worshiper die in the representative animal. That's why they lean their hand against this animal. Um, after which it's slaughtered, the blood is separated out, splashed on the altar as a public presentation to God, that the worshiper animal has been slain. The worshiper through the animal. Um, so again, there's a picture teaching Israel about what is to happen to them. Um, you see this in verse 15 of, of uh, Leviticus 9. So then he presented the people's offering. So I skipped over the part about Aaron's sin, which had to be dealt with. Now we're dealing with the people's sin. So he, um, he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it, offered it as a sin offering like the first one, which was his. All right. Call to worship, confession. Now we have consecration. This is the ascension offering. Your Bibles say burnt offering. That word ola does not mean a burnt offering. Now it's true, there was a burning aspect of it. The animal is burnt up. That word is ascension. It's ascending up. And so the idea is that you, you kill this animal, you separate it. That's the purification part. You burn it up. It, the smoke goes up to God. So it's ascending up. And of course, that's what we do on Sunday mornings. That's, we are ascending into the presence of God. So that's what Israel was being taught through this pattern here. Verse 16, um, and he presented the burnt offering, the Ola, the ascension offering, and offered it according to the rule. Now, right after that, tied to this is tithes and offerings. That's the grain offering. And that's not its own separate part of covenant renewal worship. In the old covenant, tithes and offerings are always connected to the burnt offering. So anytime you bring a burnt, so you never get a burnt offering on its own, or I'm sorry, a uh, grain offering. You can get a burnt offering on its own, but you can't get a grain offering. A grain offering is always tied to something else. So that's why we add tithes and offerings to that consecration part of our service. So you see that in 17. Um, and he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it, burned it on the altar beside the burnt offering of the morning. And then next, we have communion. The and this is called the sacrifice of the peace offering. What's interesting about this is the, this is the only time sacrifice is used. We typically refer to these things as sacrifices. They're actually offerings. They're always called offerings. It's only the peace offering that's called the sacrifice of the peace offering. This word is zeba, and it's used in terms of worship. The worshiper, as represented now by the animal, ascends into God's glory through the fire on the altar and becomes food. This, so this is literally the, the language here. Um, then he killed the ox and the ram and the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's son handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And, um, and I'll skip down. But um, when, when they're describing this um, sacrifice in Leviticus 3, it is called food for God. So that is a pleasing, the, the, the smoke rises up and is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Um, now, in a communion meal, we eat together, and that's kind of the idea. We are eating with God. We, we have ascended into his throne. We're eating a meal with God. That's what's going on here. This is the only time that the people could eat the offering, their, their animal that they brought. So God gets his portion, and it's always the fatty, the best portions. God gets his portion. The priest and their family get, his family gets their portion. The people get their portion. 
It's a communion meal. And then finally, you have commissioning. So once the sacrifice is over, Yahweh sends the worshiper out, renewed and empowered. There's that catchphrase. And uh, for service in the kingdom. And there you see that in verse 23. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Did you have numbers six? Who had numbers? Okay. Number six, 22 through 27 is an example of that blessing, of that commissioning. Yeah. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall I put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Thank you. So, yes. So, that is part of what we're doing on Sunday mornings. That's this, and this will be the pattern that I'm going to use in the next two weeks of take, taking these aspects and then applying it to our home life. Um, I did try to come up with a way to kind of do a little bit of foundation and some practical stuff, and I just could never figure out. So, unfortunately, this may be the more boring week. <laughs> you know, it's more of the foundation, and we'll get into the practical stuff in two weeks. But I do want to... I do want you to sort of meditate on this, that, that these, these things are what we take home with us. You know, we're not doing anything new in our homes with our marriages and with our family that God has not already given us to do. Um, I think I have this down later, but, um, you know, God, you know, in fact, I'll just wait because I, get, I think I gave it to somebody already, but um, God has given us um, this, you know, he says to imitate him. And then he says, like he loves his children. So worship, when we, when, God, when we show our love to God by coming in worship, this is, God, it's referred to as we are his children. So it makes sense for us to take this example that God, how he loves us, and then take it home and love our wives, love our spouses, love our children in the same way. But of course, it's not exactly the same way. So that's what we will kind of get into is how do we understand these things in light of our home life? Because some things you don't do at home. You know, you don't do communion at home. You do it with the body of Christ. So we'll get into some of that stuff. Um, but there are other aspects of worship. For instance, posture. We, we emphasize posture here at Trinity. And there's a reason why. Because posture matters. We don't want to fall on either side of the ditch of just sitting still and making sure that, you know, we don't express ourselves, but we also don't want to just go crazy and just, you know, jumping around and barking or whatever. And so what we do is we say, yes, posture is important. Let's do it together because we are the bride of Christ. Let's do it as one. Standing, sitting, lifting hands, kneeling, passing. Have you thought about that? Like part of why we do communion the way we do it is because passing it to one another as opposed to coming forward and having a priest put in our mouth or whatever, that's important. That's a, that is a posture that is important and teaches us something. There's a call and response aspect of worship. Lift up your hearts. Yes. Um, Christian, what do you believe? And then we say the Nicene Creed or the Creed. And what do we do after every song that we sing? We say, Amen. So these are things that are training us and teaching us and that are also things that you can take home and use in your home. And finally, the other aspect I want to bring up is uh, 
ministering to one another. This is something that we don't always think about. When we come to worship, we are not just coming to worship for our own benefit, although that is a big part of it. We are coming so that not only to worship God, but for him to serve us. But we are also coming to serve one another. When we sing songs, when we pray, we do it out loud. That's why our service is so participatory, because we want you to be singing to your neighbor. When we pray together, you're praying to your, for your neighbor next to you. Who had Colossians 3.16? Okay. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Thank you. Yeah, so we're doing that to each other. The, the word, you know, there, there's this idea, of it's, it, it, the way it translates is that we are one anothering one another. And, and whatever that means, that's, that's how it looks. You know, it's, it, it's, it's we are together as one body and we are building each other up. And that doesn't just happen outside the service. It happens in the service and it happens in our homes as well. Uh, confessing in prayer. Who had James 5, 13 through 16? Okay, go ahead. Uh, 13 through yes, 13 through 16. Uh, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Right. I mean, we get that. Sometimes, you know, we, we talk about people who are prayer warriors. And sometimes we think about that as, oh, well, that's just a special gift they have. And some people do have that. I mean, some people do that way better than other people. And it's usually the, it's usually the little old lady in your church that nobody ever really pays attention to who is actually the strongest warrior in your church. But, um, but this is why we pray the way we pray in, in Trinity, um, in, in the CREC in general, I should say, because, I, I mean, this is typical. And this is why I think God is blessing our denomination as well in our church. Because we, are, we take these things seriously. We are training each other how to pray by doing it together in church. We don't just show up and let one guy just pray. All the men participate, you know, like everybody is, gets a chance to get up and lead and pray. And we get, to, you know, that's a wonderful thing to get to see other men lead in prayer. And we pray together. We say the Lord's prayer every week together. So we're training each other how to pray. It's not just a special gift that only the a few possess. We're all supposed to do it. So we need to practice it. That's why we come here. Um, so let's take that now. And, and um, I want to talk a little bit about New Covenant worship in light of what we just read. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to move to Romans 12. I'm only going to read two verses, but I do want to break those verses down a little bit. I want to do a little uh, scriptural exegesis here. And again, this is foundational. Some people may love this. Some people may be bored by it. <laughs> but I think it's important. Sunday school. So we're going to dig into the Word a little bit. Um, okay, so Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The context of this verse we get in Romans 9 through 11. Of course, as Reformed folk, we love Romans 9. Um, And so we know that one about Jacob and Esau. Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. But the idea of that whole passage is simply that Paul is writing to these, these Christians, these Roman Christians, and explaining to them what has happened. Between Why have the Jews fallen away? Why have they been cut off? And he's reminding them that, Gentile, you have been grafted in. And he also has to remind them, like, don't be arrogant like they were arrogant. Remember what God has done here for you. And that he will do that for them as well. So there's this idea in Romans of, yes, the Jews have fallen away. Gentiles have been grafted in. But through your obedience and not through your haughtiness or your assuming that you're special now, your obedience will actually lead to their jealousy, which will lead to their salvation. Um, You know, the Jews... Everything we read about, that was the Jews. The Jews got to worship that way. That old covenant worship was, was theirs. It was given to them so that they could grow up and be the people of God that they were meant to be. But, of course, they didn't do that. The problem was not with the worship, though. The problem was with their response to the worship. And so, as we get through Romans 9-11, through 11, Romans 12 begins with, Therefore... Therefore, present your bodies as living sacrifices. And this is important to know that context because this is one of these passages that people come to all the time and they just sort of interpret living sacrifices as whatever they want it to mean. So, you know, I'm driving down the car, I'm going to flip on Christian radio, and this is my living sacrifice. You know, it's my emotions, it's my feelings. It's, it, it can be, it could, living sacrifice is one of these words we just kind of pass over and think, it can just mean whatever we want it to mean nowadays. And, and that's not true. Paul would have been saying something very specific. He has just talked about the failure of the Jews to respond to the sacrificial system that God gave them to grow them up. And so he's telling them, don't be like that. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. In other words, respond appropriately to the old covenant worship form but now in light of of its fulfillment in Christ. And so when he says holy and acceptable, this is because they are in Christ. Going back to Leviticus, there were all sorts of reasons why offerings would not be acceptable. And we won't read those. But I mean, you know, if you touch death, if you're in the presence of death, if you you just had a baby, whatever, there were all kinds of reasons. These weren't sins. They just made you unclean because the reminder was, you pass death to the next person over. Death, death is contagious. Everybody spreads it. And that was a reminder that, no, you can't come to before God because you have death on you. And you don't get to come before God. It doesn't, again, it doesn't mean you were a, it wasn't that it was a sin. If you had a baby, you clearly you didn't sin. If your father died, that's not a sin. Go bury your father. But you can't come to worship this week. You got to go. You got to wash yourself. You got to go wait the appropriate time. Then you can get clean. Then you can come back to worship. And if you had an ailment that you couldn't fix, like, you know, like the story of the lady with the blood, 
who it never stopped. So she, part of that story is she never got to worship. So when she reaches out and touches God by faith, what's happening there is life is spreading from Jesus. Life, life Jesus is the first one that can go into a room with a dead body and life comes out. Before that, that's why he tells his disciples, you stay outside. You would be unclean, but Jesus can spread life. And this is what Paul is telling to them. You are now holy and acceptable. You've been washed once. Baptism. Good. You're good to go. You can go before God. You can be clean. Um, And um, now as a Christian by faith, you, when you offer yourself as a living sacrifice, you are always accepted. Responding this way now is, is called your spiritual worship or your, um, but that, I think even Chris Wiley may have brought this up the last time he was here. That word spiritual doesn't, again, this is a passage which people can just take to mean whatever they want to mean. So spiritual is one of those, I'm a very spiritual person. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, it could mean a whole mess of things. But that word actually is logikos. Log, yeah, logikos. Um, I didn't write the uh, pronunciation here. Um, uh, if, and, and what that means is, is reasonable. Um, it follows. So this thing has happened, so it makes sense to do this. And of course, in this context, this is what God has done for you through Christ. It makes sense to worship. It makes sense to present your body. And so the only other time this word is used is in 1 Peter 2.2. And it says, like newborn infants who long for the pure spiritual milk that, it may, that, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Again, this is this, this idea of babies natural, like they're created to want milk so they can grow. That's the, that's the same idea. Like it makes sense. It follows. God made them like this so that they would do this thing. And so we shouldn't um, just sort of translate it as spiritual it, it, it may, it, so some, some scriptures say reasonable. I think that's a better translation. Um, so let's keep going. So now we know, th- so there's a progression here. And the next thing that comes up is do not be conformed to this world. And this, the, wor- the word world means this age or this time we live in. And of course, primarily, Paul is talking about this old covenant age that's coming to an end. And the bad guys of this time are these Judaizers, these men, these, these Jewish who have converted, they said. But they're, they're like, listen, yeah, Jesus is great, but you got to get circumcised. you got to go back and worship this way. you got to act like a Jew. Come do this. And Paul is saying, no, I, you don't do that. You don't have to follow that way. This is not what you do. In fact, if you go that way, you're going to die. You better go this way. So that's primarily what's, what's going on here, but... This is broadly applicable in our current age, right? Um, this, this world is passing away. The, the, the old covenant passed away. This world we're living in, this age we're living in, it passes away. Sometimes we see that from week to week, right? It's like whatever the controversy of the time is, and then you think back like, oh, that was a thing that happened, and, and now it's not even on my radar anymore. But at one point, it was like, oh, my goodness, this is the end of the world. What's going to happen? This, this controversy has happened, and now we, we sort of just move on. So the world we live in is constantly shifting, changing, ebbing, and flowing. And what this command is, is do not 
conform to this world, but conform yourself to a different world. First Peter 1 Peter 1.4, um, I, I think I even talked about this at our parish group the other night. An inher- Jesus has an inheritance kept in heaven for us, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. The exact, these three things are the opposite of what the world we live in now is like. Um, that's the point. So when he says, do not be conformed, that word conformed is siska kamatso. It's siskimatso or scheme. You get that word scheme or system. Do not be conformed. Do not, do not go according to their scheme. There is a better scheme for you. You're in a different world now. Um, notice the liturgical aspect of that, though, right? So they have a liturgy. The world has a liturgy. That could also be part of the, what we were talking about earlier about why they want to blur that line. But the world does have a ritual, a liturgy that they want you to follow. It's a scheme. Um, the, lo- the logical pattern of worship counters the world's logical pattern of worship. They worship in their own way, which is counter to the way God wants us to worship. Keeping on with our, with our do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. That word is metamorphosis transfigure the transfiguration of Jesus so this idea of being transformed is not just put your mind to it and do it like it is an actual transforming of who you are that's what you do now as a Christian your baptism you've come into the church and every time you come to worship you are being molded into something different you're being metamorphosized I guess you could say um, by the renewing be transformed by the renewing of your mind this word mind is that's not really the best way to understand it. Um, it's not just an intellectual endeavor. The better way to understand this word is judgment. So it's your awareness. Be transformed by the renewing of your awareness, of your judgment. And of course, judgment um, means to see. So that this, this word noose means to see, to, to, and again, not just with your eyes, but like to see the big picture. Um, Jesus, or God created, and he saw that it was good. That was his judgment. He has perfect judgment. Immediately after that, Eve saw the fruit, and it says that she saw that the fruit was good for eating, and they ate. She has bad judgment. That was bad judgment. So that's a that's a good picture right there of what the difference is that Paul's trying to get across. Um, carrying on to the end of this little two-verse two uh, passage here, that by testing yourself, you may discern. And that word, again, I'm using the ESV here, and I, I'm a fan of the ESV. I use it all the time. But again, this is one of these passages you just skip right through and not really catch what's going on here. This, this idea that testing you may discern really means that the better word is that you may prove, that you may prove this. So worship is designed to form and build our judgments so that they correspond to who we are, our identity. We, we have been baptized into Christ. Now we need to act this way. But as you notice, this is not a one-time thing, right? Like you didn't get baptized and immediately have all the answers figured out. 
No, God gives us worship. He calls us to himself so that we can be who we are, if that makes sense. We are this. We are not that. But we act like that. But we need to act like this. And that's what worship does for us. We are Christians, so we are called to present ourselves before God in worship so that he will change us to be proper judges of this world. That's the idea. When we see these crazy, ridiculous, wicked things happening out there, the reason why it's such a, for us, that we can see, you know, and of course the issue too is we wonder why, why aren't these Christians over here getting outraged? Because they're not being conformed in the right way. They go to a church that just says, you know, happy clappy, you know, God loves you just the way you are, you know, be you. Um, it, of course they're not going to see it and go, oh, what is going on here? We can because this is what we do week in and week out. So the practical application for this um, is that in the same way that this requires us to come to worship week in, week out. If we want to change, if we want to be who we are week in, week out, then the same is true when we leave here week in and week out. In the same way, it didn't take one time for us to figure it all out through worship. It does not take one time for us to figure it out in the home life and with our children or with our spouses. Um, there's a correlation between the presenting of our bodies as living sacrifices and the renewing of our minds. And in the same way that there are biblical models and tools for corporate worship, and that was kind of the point of what I wanted, why I did this foundational part here, in the same way that God has said, here, here is a model for you to use in worship, so there are models and tools for us in how to act in the world. And Continuing with uh, Romans 12, you can read ahead. Um, let me just read it real quick because it's great. You know, you, God says, present yourself in worship. And then he says this. Here's the marks of a true Christian. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And it keeps going and going. And these are things that says, okay, here's what you're supposed to do. And then the Bible gives us these things, says, okay, here's how you do this. It takes work. It takes practice. It takes building up your muscles to do it. But I want to go back to that first, you know, it says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. Okay, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Paul's, what Paul is doing here essentially is kind of a, his own, his own little commentary. You know, we, we use commentaries when we study Romans 12. Well, Romans 12 is actually kind of a commentary on Matthew 22, 36 through 39. And the teacher, and, and this man comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
So the Ten Commandments boil down to these two things that are absolutely vital for living a Christian life. And it's as simple as can be in terms of understanding it. It's just another thing to actually live it out, right? But love God, go to worship, love your neighbor in service. That's it. Do this thing and then go be sent out to do this other thing. So then we come to the next question. Who is my neighbor? And the simple answer is anyone in close proximity to you. Practically, then, there are degrees of interaction, influence, and responsibility which changes for each of us. Home, work, church, neighborhood, school, shopping, community activities, online. What else? Am I missing anything? Has anybody got anything off the top of their head? I mean, there's so many different ways. Each of our lives are different, right? Um, I'm sure I'm missing some. But... um, Let's see. Now, it's not as simple. So one of the ways that this has been understood in the past by good, you know, I'm, I'm reformed. So I, I do appreciate Kuiper and the idea of sphere sovereignty, this idea that the authority of the family, the authority of the church and the authority of government, like the government can't, the government authority doesn't have anything to say about your family authority or the church authority. But there is a sense where these things kind of blend a little bit, Right. I mean, if we are doing what we're supposed to do, then you are going to influence the way that the government works, the way that your family works. The church is going to influence the family. And, of course, maybe the difference there is simply what authority as opposed to influence. But um, the, the issue happens when we, we, we are brothers in Christ here and we go out. And the fact is, is that some of you may go out as a Christian and your boss is also a Christian, but your boss is doing things that you don't like. And all of a sudden, there's, there's a new dynamic there because it's not just some non-Christian, woke, wicked dude over here, but it's actually your boss that you love and you worship with who is actually telling you to do something that you think is not good. And, you know, and there's conflict there, and you have to figure out, okay, this is my brother. This is now, like, our relationship is different than this other relationship over here that I have with these non-Christians or with, you know, so it complicates matters. Well, imagine the complications now when we talk about the home, (laughs) you know, uh, spouses living together day in and day out and children who are trying to learn how to obey and not doing a very good job of it. And our job is to make them learn how to obey. And all of a sudden now that's, these are conflicts because it's the, the issue now is not just your children that you're dealing with, right? It's not just your spouse. It is also your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's something we have to remember. When we come to worship in here, it's not just our children that are wiggling in the seat and you're trying to get them to be still. It's your brothers and sisters, right? So that adds a new dynamic to what we're trying to understand here. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Encourage one another and build each other up. And I said this earlier, Ephesians 5.1, Be imitators of God as beloved children. God is patient with us. This is why he gives us worship week in and week out to form us. We sin every single week. This is why we have confession every single week. So we come back to God every week and, you know, confess what we have done for the week. And, you know, God doesn't treat us the way that we treat our children, right? Or, you know, the same things that you and your wife are struggling with or you and your husband are struggling with over and over and over again. And it's just making you roll your eyes and just lose respect for them. Remember that we do the same thing with God and he loves us 
every week. He accepts us every single time. And I've seen some pretty hard cases in churches I've been at where it was this consistent, like, sin that they were... But there's a difference between an arrogance of the sin and realize, you know, oh, this person is walking away from the faith. And then a person who literally is struggling with this sin and is desperate to try to get out of it. And you still have to understand that they're, they, keep, they keep falling. Okay, what do you do with this? You know, so there, there are different cases. And sometimes little cases turn into big cases. But, and that's, that's the thing that we'll talk about in future weeks as well too. But um, I do want to bring this up. I think it's interesting. This is just a practical observation I had in thinking about this. You know, I, uh, I joined the CRC like 20 years ago. And that, it really did change my, I mean, it completely, Denise and I joined a church and noticed, oh, the kids are different. The people, like, the, before the theology kind of changed us, it was seeing the difference in these people's lives and how it played itself out. And so I'm looking ahead with the, you know, we had the time we have like one child, two child, two children, and we're looking at that and we're going, okay, how do we get our kids to this 18-year-old we're watching over here that loves his siblings, is serving, you know, and I'm like, what, what's going on here? How did this happen? Because I'm coming from a context where every kid is like falling away from the faith. You know, it, it is a, it's not a, um, it's not a, it's, it's true that, you know, the, uh, what's, what's it called? The, uh, the survey people that, um, oh, yeah, the Pew Research and then there's Barna or whatever. And they say that 70% of evangelical kids fall away when they go to college or whatever. And that was true. Like, I was at this church. We were youth, you know, youth leaders of this church. And we're serving and teaching these kids. And then I'm friends with them on Facebook. And, like, they're all, like, gone. Like, they, they've all abandoned. They, they, it's crazy. Some of them have come back. But it was just weird. I'm trying to figure out, I don't want this for my family. But how do we, how do we change this? And so we come to this church and we're like, oh, this is different. And so I actually entered into the job force with this mindset. You know, I, I came into the, in, in working for the uh, power industry with this idea that I, I have a job to do here. You know, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to influence these people. And after 13, so I'll just use Nashville Electric as my one example. I was there 13 years. And I was purposeful in what I did. Like I, I people knew. I mean, in a in a group of two, three hundred, I was the guy that prayed before meal. You know, because they still we're in the South, so they still had this element of well, let's we're a family. We're going to pray. Brian, will you pray? Because we know we can count on you to pray. So they. So I was very purposeful in what I did. And I think back to that, and and there was there was one guy that actually was like, mentor me, please. Like, like, do you like, please, like, I need help. Will you help me? There was one other guy that was kind of like, he was curious. I think he came to church one time. And then that was about it. So for 13 years, other than people knowing that I was a Christian and that I was living differently than a lot of them, there was only one or two people that actually kind of was like, oh, I see this. I want this. I want to be a part of this, you know. So all that to say is my six, I've tripled that with my home, right? <laughs> you know, so the influence I have with my six kids and what they have grown up to be and the influence I had on them was far more than the 13 years at a company that I worked day in and day out over time. And, and so the, the point there is just 
the different, like sometimes we think who is our neighbor. And so we got to put our focus and attention on those outside the home. The fact is the most influence you will have is your spouse and your children. So put the effort into them more than outside that. I remember going to a men's breakfast one time, or maybe it was dinner, I don't remember, but it was this group of guys. It's called Holy Smokes. And so it was all these Christian guys who get together and smoke cigars. But one time, we, and I stopped going because what it would, we'd show up and we'd, you know, oh, we're going to do this Bible study, and they never do it. They'd just talk. And I'm like, I get up early. So I stopped going. But one day they were like, hey, come back to the group. We're going to do an earlier thing. We're going to have barbecue, get to know some of these new guys. So I came, and I'm sitting there, and we're going around the table, and everybody's sharing their story. And the first guy, uh, you know, the first guy came along and he, he's like, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a in the music industry and I do all this stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. And, and he's like, yeah, me and my wife, we're, you know, no kids. Like, it's just, you know, wouldn't fit our style. Next guy comes along. He goes, well, I do have a girl. And I am married. I have a kid. He goes, I work in Africa like three out of four months. He goes, it really works out great because I'm a horrible dad, a horrible husband, but I'm really good at this. So people were like, oh, my gosh, that's awesome. Like he was he's like one of those guys that like saves the African children from being put like into those armies and in slavery. And so it's like this really big like, wow, that's amazing. So all the guys were like, that's so awesome. You're you're the band. And I'm over there going, but your family's a wreck. Like, that's crazy to me. So we come around and it's my turn. And I say, oh, you know, this is who I am. This is where I work. I got six kids. Oh, my goodness. Like, what, six kids? And the next guy next to me goes, I would kill myself like that, like that, if that happened to me. And um, one, one guy, uh, it was just crazy. So as we went around the table, the, the guy that was after me, he was like, yeah, I just got married. The first thing I did was I got a vasectomy. He goes, nope. He goes, <laughs> so it was just this weird idea of people whose whole lives, like they were Christians, you know, who they were so focused on the world. Like that was what their job was to do. And then it, even to the purposeful neglect of family, like I don't want family so I can be this thing, but that's not the way God designed it for most of us. God's designed his church to grow through the family. We bring our children to church. We bring our spouses to, we come together as a family how am I doing on time? Okay. Got about, I'll try to end in about 10 minutes. Um, so let me move on. Um, let me do another. So we're talking about who our neighbor is. And this gives me just enough time to do what I thought was fun. Excursion. Hopefully it's interesting. It's just something as I was studying, I thought was really interesting. But in um, talking about who your neighbor is, um, in Luke 10, 25 through 37, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and I'll read that real quick. Luke 10. And, um, or actually, I'll just read the very beginning of it because we know the story. But I do want to highlight one part of it here. Um, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So he got it. He understood what Jesus was saying. He heard it. He's like, here's the you know, Sunday school answer. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But, then he's, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
And Jesus replied with the story of the good Samaritan. Now, why was it a Samaritan? What was the point of what he was trying to convey that it was a Samaritan that did this, you know, good deed? Well, going back to, go, uh, in John 4, we have a story of Jesus meeting a woman at the well. The whole, um, and it was a woman of Samaria. So I'll read, again, I'll just, I won't read the whole thing. I'll just read the pertinent part here. But now when Jesus learned that the, um, let me see here, uh, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had been given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The whole point of this passage, of course, is that the Samaritan woman, he's asking her for a drink. And she's, you know, she said, why would you ask me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan. We don't mix together, you know. And he starts engaging with her. Later on, the disciples come up and they're like, what's he doing? You know, talking to this woman. Not only is it a woman, but it's a Samaritan woman. But of course, the story leads to him talking about the true living water. And she brings up this idea, you know, this fact that, well, y'all worship over here and we worship over here. We're not allowed to worship together. And he says, well, guess what? That's going to completely change where they're worshiping. You know, where the Jews worship now will not be standing. And you're standing in front of the person that will bring you clear living water. And of course, she goes and starts telling everybody about it. And I'm leaving out a bunch of stuff. But the point is this. Jesus is making this point to the Samaritan woman. And then later he tells this parable about this, the good Samaritan. Um, I'm sorry, my mouth is really dry here. Um, an interesting thing that I noticed as I was studying this before was this word here. So we know exactly where Sikar, we don't know where that is. We have an idea. But in the New Testament, probably what it is, is Shechem. Um, it's the same city called Shechem. Now we know that because right after it says, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. So this is where Joseph was buried, is Shechem. So we have this whole story in, the, in Joshua about Joseph dies in Egypt and his body is carried to Shechem. So we know exactly where this is. So if whatever Sikar is, we know it's right around Shechem. But here's an interesting thing about this. It says, Near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. That word near, there is a word for that word near throughout the Bible. And it's always used except this one time. This one time, the word here is used neighbor for some reason. Neighbor is a completely different word. But so the way you would translate this is, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, neighboring the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. So of the, the only place in the Bible this word is used as in, in that way. The neighboring, the, so neighbor is connected to this word. Who was my neighbor? The good Samaritan. What happens in Shechem? Let's talk about a few things in the Bible that happen in Shechem. Genesis 34. Simeon and Levi kill the men of Shechem for violating their sister Dinah. What they do is... So what happens is their daughter, their sister is violated, but this, the son of Shechem, the son, his name is Shechem, actually. The city's named after him, his, his dad. Um, 
named it after him. And he actually loves Dinah. So he wants to marry Dinah. And so the brothers, they, they are angry. And so what they say, they trick him. And they say, listen, our, our sister cannot marry anybody that's not a Jew. You have to become a Jew. Okay, what do we need to do? Let's make a covenant. Well, you have to be circumcised. So they're like, okay, um, we'll do it. And so everybody... Okay, we'll all do it. And everybody's like, yes, like we want, to, we want a covenant with these people. So they get circumcised. Of course, they're all in pain. Um, and what happens is Simeon and Levi come through and they kill every single dude. They're dead. And so what has happened here is they have made a covenant. They, so these men have become brothers. And then they slaughter them. So they actually use the covenant ritual as a trick to kill them. Um, actually, so here later on, when, when Jacob is talking about this, this is, this is a translation of what he says in Genesis 49. So as he's blessing his sons, remember at the end of, the, of Genesis, he's blessing each of his sons. And he says, As Simeon and Levi, brothers they destroyed, they treated violently their circumcised covenant fellows. It's essentially the straight translation of that. Genesis 37. And, and this is chronologically according or according to the bible but actually i think these two stories might be you know have happened at different times but in genesis 37 joseph is sent out to look for his brothers he's given the coat of many colors he is the authority Jake, uh, his father trusts him more than his brothers and there's good reason because when he goes to shechem where they're supposed to be they're not there they're not where they're supposed to be but he finds them and of course we know what happens to joseph they pretend like he is killed. They pretend like he is slaughtered, and they sell him into slavery. And we know the story that happened with that. But this happened at Shechem. Judges 9. Gideon's son by a concubine, Abimelech. Gideon dies. Remember, Gideon was this great, he was like this dude, little young dude, you know, becomes this great warrior. You know, and even God whittles away his army. It's Gideon and 300 men, and they go and they fight and they win. Because God is on their side. But near the end of Gideon's life, he kind of goes off the rails a little bit. And he becomes a king. He, at first, he's like, I don't want to be a king. He's like Caesar. Oh, I won't be a king. I don't want to be a king. You know. So he becomes a king. Um, his brother, or his son, Abimelech, by a concubine, he has 70, 70 brothers. Um, Abimelech goes to the men and says, listen, if you make me king, do you really want 70 people ruling over you? Make me the king. And he goes to Shechem, slaughters all 70 brothers on a stone. So another brother, brother death. First Kings 12, the split of the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom. Jeroboam, Rehoboam come together and they can't work it out and they're going to split. Where do they meet? In Shechem. Shechem is where the split of the kingdoms happens. So Shechem is not just coincidental. You know, like there's a reason why Jesus met this woman at a well there. Um, There's a reason why he used a Samaritan in his parable. And there's a reason why in Acts 8, and this is what I'll close with, in Acts 8, let me read this. In Acts 8, Acts 7, Stephen has just been killed and the Christians start scattering. And where do they go first? They go to Judea and Samaria. And so Philip goes to Samaria. 
And he preaches in, it says, the city of Samaria. There's not very many cities in Samaria. So the city is probably Shechem, right? Um, and the Samaritans and Christians, it says the, the people there, which is now, so all these Christians have fled. And they're in Samaria now. And so Philip, the deacon, follows them up there and he starts preaching. And I'll just explain because I won't, I won't read it. But um, so, and it says this, the city of Samaria and the, and the people there heard him and became of one accord. They became united, one mind. Peter and John hear this. They come up to Shechem, to Samaria. They lay hands on them. The Spirit comes upon them. The Spirit's always come down at Pentecost. Now the Spirit is coming down in Samaria. They are one brothers. They have joined together. They are united in the Spirit. And so who is my neighbor? Well, that's who your neighbor is. The gospel has now joined brothers together. You know, that's why, you know, God's creation act is separating, forming, and filling. That's what, you know, if you read the first three days of creation, he separated. He separated light from darkness. He separated the waters above from the waters below. He separated the land from the waters. In the New Testament, what does he say? I have not come to make peace. I've come to separate sons and fathers, families. To get, you know, and, the, and the idea is this. If they, don't leave the, if they don't leave that world behind, I'm creating something new, and you have to leave that. And if it means leaving your family, then you do it. But in the process, he's putting it back together. That's what the new covenant is, is putting families back together. We now live in a world beyond that, where we don't have to choose between that, right? We don't have to, we don't leave our families behind. We bring our families with us because we are in the covenant together. We bring them to church. And the mercy, you know, that, that fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 is now being is fulfilled in the new covenant. That period of time there in the old covenant where things were being separated because a new covenant was being made, we're past that. So we don't we don't look at that way anymore. Now we are all together, our families. And so we have a responsibility. Our neighbors, and this is really, I could have just said this, right? Because we all believe this. The, your neighbors, your closest neighbors are right here in the seat next to you and at home. You tuck them into bed every night. You get in bed with them every night. That's who your neighbor is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Worship God. Love your neighbor. And we'll get into practical stuff in the next two weeks about that. Let me pray and we'll close. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your creative work, especially in terms of our families. We're thankful for the families you have given us. Uh, we, we all pray that we would be obedient and we would follow your word and how we live and love our neighbors. Um, bless our families. And I pray that we would, as a greater family here at Trinity, love one another, bear each other's burdens, and help each other out as we navigate the, these hard roads because we trust your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.